Our Bible reading today is from Acts 12, 1 to 25. It was about that this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angels and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went to Judea, to Caesarea, and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Great, thank you for reading God's word for us. 
Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name is James, and it's a real privilege to be preaching God's Word here at Burwood Prezi today with you all. Uh, if I get the chance after, I'd love to meet, uh, meet you, so come up and say hello. Uh, let's pray before we start. Father, we thank you that you are alive and active in the world today, and that you are piercing through uh, lies and uh, power structures by the power of your word. And so, Father, we ask that as we come to your word this morning, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things from your law. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as many of you would be aware, over the past week, uh, here at Burwood Presbyterian Church, we've been hosting the Emmanuel College Intensive. And uh, this intensive covered a range of topics ranging from philosophy to ethics and how Christians ought to navigate life in this brave new world in which we live. And through the lectures, it was made clear that we do not live in a nation where Christianity is loved and embraced. Not that there ever was a golden age in which everything was perfect, but it seems as though our rulers and authorities are growing increasingly hostile towards the gospel. And this is not to suggest that every nation is the same in this regard. God seems to be doing amazing and wonderful things across the world. And the church is growing and flourishing at an unprecedented rate. However, it's undeniable that here in Australia, we live in an increasing time of authoritarianism. Governments, the mainstream media, and academic institutions increasingly portray Christianity not as a social good, but as dangerous. And biblical Christianity is portrayed as a threat to be stamped out. Our convictions on marriage, sexuality, gender, and race are no longer mainstream. They are divergent from the mainstream and no longer tolerable by our institutions. And because of this, we see Christians losing their jobs because they won't sign certain statements, Christians losing custody of their children because they won't affirm them in gender transition, and many Christians are suffering greatly due to their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And in some way, this is no surprise to us because the Apostle Paul promised Timothy in his final epistle, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But it raises the question for us today, how should we respond when authoritarian leaders and rulers persecute us? Or put another way, how should we as Christians respond when we are mocked, scorned, and even killed by our rulers for pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ? And I believe the passage before us today gives us a wonderful answer to this important question. And I've entitled this sermon, King Herod versus King Jesus, because I think at its heart, this passage is a fight and a war between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. We find a collision between the rule of man and the rule of God. And in the text before us, we see the interaction between these two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. I've broken the passage down into four main points. Uh, And we'll start with the first scene, which is from verses 1 to verse 5. So please keep your Bibles open. We'll be working our way through the text here this morning. And the first point is Herod persecutes the apostles. Look with me to verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
Here in verse 1, we are introduced to this man called King Herod. And in the New Testament, we find six different Herods, so sometimes it's confusing to pin down which exact one uh, is being talked about here. The Herod here described in Acts chapter 12 is King Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, the man who attempted to kill baby Jesus. And we learn some key things about King Herod Agrippa here in Acts chapter 12. And the very first thing we learn about King Herod Agrippa in this text is that he was a violent man. Specifically, at this point in history, we learn that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And this is another way of saying that Herod began to persecute certain Christians. And we're told which Christians he began to persecute in verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so here we find King Herod not just trying to kill any and every Christian at the same time, but he's focusing his sights, he's focusing his crosshairs on the leaders of this Christian movement. And specifically, he went after the 12 apostles, the very men who were commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so he's attacking the leaders of the Christian movement. Specifically, his target in verse 2 was James, the brother of John. And we read that he executed James by the sword. Shortly after, he took the apostle Peter captive as well. And you might be wondering, or you might have wondered, as you've read the Bible before, what motivates worldly leaders to persecute Christians? Uh, Why do they do it? Do they have a particular animus towards Christians? What is driving them? We're not told the answer, oh sorry, we are told the answer in the text if we keep reading in verse 2. We read that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. We learn something here of Herod's nature and the psychology behind this Man, You see, Herod was a remarkably political man. He was a man who appealed to the lusts and desires of the people he served because at the end of the day, Herod's reign and rule depended upon the approval of the public. And like many politicians, King Herod was a man who loved power and he loved being admired by the people. And he did whatever it took to maintain his popularity in the latest polls. You see, he was a political chameleon. And I suspect that one of the great temptations for us as well is to love power more than we love God and others. But how true is this for those who find themselves in positions of authority? And when this happens, our rulers begin to do what is politically convenient rather than what is their deep and true conviction in the truth. That's exactly what we see with King Herod in the way that he killed James the Apostle. It's not just that he killed James to please the Jews. He kills him in a very specific way. It's an interesting detail that's easy to pass over. Did you notice in verse 2 how he killed James? He kills him by the sword. See, according to Jewish tradition, there were multiple ways that someone could be executed. You could be stoned or burned or strangled or beheaded with the sword. And this fourth punishment, beheading, was reserved for those who were guilty of 
apostasy, those who were false teachers and who proclaimed messages that were contradictory to the word of God. And so why did King Herod execute James by the sword if King Herod wasn't even a Jew? You see, by beheading him, Herod was proclaiming James to be a false teacher and therefore allying himself with the unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so it's a very political move, not just to kill the leader of the Christian movement, but to kill him by beheading, accusing him of being an apostate and therefore allying himself with the Jews. I suspect that Herod couldn't really have cared less about the method of execution, but he used the sword to gain the praise of men. But you see, those who clench after power and control have an insatiable desire for more. Uh, there is a never amount of power that they are satisfied with. And we see this in Herod's continual persecution of believers even after this execution. We find that the Apostle James is not the only victim of Herod's rampage. In verse 2, we learn that after killing James, he took the Apostle Peter captive too. And we learn in verse 3, if you look to verse 3, that Herod didn't execute Peter because it was the time of unleavened bread or the days of unleavened bread. Why isn't he killing him during this time? Again, he's pandering to the Jews. Because according to Jewish law, it was illegal to execute someone during Passover. And so Herod knew this. He was making sure that Peter would only be executed after Passover was finished. And if you think about this, isn't this such a window into Herod's heart and what's going on in his soul? And even more deeply, isn't this a window into the human heart? The crowds were willing to engage in religious ceremonies and then murder a man. And so in reality, so much of the time, religious celebrations are a facade that masquerades the wickedness of what we're happy to do during the week. One moment they're praising God in Passover, the next moment they're executing an innocent man. But the story doesn't stop there, thankfully. Uh, if we look to verse 4, we find what happens to Peter when he's taken into custody. We read in verse 4. And when he had seized Peter, Herod put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Herod commands guards to arrest people, Peter. He's placed in prison and he is secured. In verse 6 we read, he's bound with two chains centuries before the door were guarding the prison. In other words, Peter is on the ground like we saw in that image before. He's got two chains on either side, two guards inside the prison. I mean, it's a lot of security, right, for an unarmed man. But the point is, Herod wants to make use of every bit of worldly security he has at his disposal because Herod cannot afford to lose this man in custody. And it's in all this mess that we are given a glimpse of hope because while Herod thinks that he is in control, there is someone even more powerful operating behind the scenes. And we see this in verse 5. Look with me to verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So in the midst of this rampage, the church are praying for Peter while he's in prison. 
You notice that it's not the prayers themselves that are powerful, it's the God they're praying to. And so the mentioning of their prayers in verse 5 prepares us not for what the apostles are going to do, but what God is going to do in the next scene, which we find from verse 6 to 11, Peter is delivered from Herod. If you look with me to verse 6, this starts the second scene. We read in verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And so Peter's in a hopeless state, it seems. He's in the middle of a prison cell. He's guarded by two guards on both sides and the doors are heavily manned. And by all human standards, Herod was putting Peter on death row and there was absolutely no way of escape. And however, while Herod's attempt to secure Peter was no match for what is happening behind the scenes, he's no match for King Jesus, who we see at work in verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. At this point in the narrative, even Peter isn't sure what's happening. Peter doesn't have a clue what he's doing. And we see this in verse 9. Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. It was only at this point, once the angel had left him, that Peter woke up. He came to his senses and realized that this was a real deliverance. This wasn't just a dream. God had actually delivered Peter from a seemingly insurmountable imprisonment. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You see, on the very next day, the Jews and Herod were expecting Peter to come out and be executed before the crowd. The Jews were lusting after more power. Herod was uh, after more blood. Herod was lusting after more power. And yet God had other plans. And when God has other plans, there's nothing that can stand in his way. You see, it wasn't Peter's determination, his strong will or his discipline that got him out of that prison. In fact, Peter didn't even have a clue what was happening to him. After all, he was having a vision, he thought. But but rather, it was purely the sovereign grace of God at work in a hopeless scenario. And this leads us to the third scene, verses 12 to 17. Peter visits the disciples. It's the very first thing that Peter does when he escapes this prison and realizes that the Lord Jesus had delivered him. If you look with me to verse 12, we find the answer to this. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at 
the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. And I want you to notice something profound here. Even though the believers we read before were committing themselves to prayer, were pouring their hearts out to God, we learned that the disciples were struggling to believe that God has the power or desire to even answer their prayers. I mean, this is why they assume that Rhoda's out of her mind. She's insane. Or if she's not insane, it's his, his angel. It's, it's not Peter. You know, while it's easy to think of the disciples as weak and faithless in this moment, not expecting God to answer prayers, isn't this so often what we do when we pray? I mean, we struggle to pray. But when we do, we often pray without a faith that God will actually answer us and he'll actually give us what we ask for. We pour out our heart to God without anticipating an answer to our prayers. And so when God does answer our prayers, we're so busy to notice that extraordinary things have happened, the ways in which God has been at work in our life and in the world. I know that this is certainly true of my experience with God and prayer over the years. You know, I I struggle to pray, but when I do pray, I pray for certain things, I forget about them, and it's only years later that I appreciate the way in which God has been at work. You see, it's not fundamentally a problem with the strength of our prayers. More than often, it's an issue with our understanding of the character of God. On the one hand, we doubt that God is powerful enough to bring about changes in the world, and on the other hand, we doubt that God even wants to answer us. We doubt that he loves us. But both of these responses lead us to pray in a way that lacks confidence that our prayers will ever be answered. And yet there's comfort in this text because here we find that Jesus Christ is a living God who powerfully answers specific prayers of his people even when we don't have faith and even when we don't expect him to answer. Even prayers that we've forgotten about. Even prayers that we've forgotten that we prayed And as we direct our attention back to the text, let's see how the disciples react when they see Peter in the flesh, God's answer to their prayers. If you look with me at verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers, Then he departed and went to another place. Peter goes in to meet with the disciples. He tells them to be quiet. He tells them about God's deliverance. He's telling them about God's grace in freeing him from his chains. And he tells them not to keep his testimony of God's deliverance a secret to themselves. It's not a privatized religion. It's a message that they need to tell to the other believers. They need to proclaim God's work in the world. And you can just imagine the joy of the disciples at this moment in salvation history. They were expecting the very next day to see one of their head apostles beheaded before the crowds. And here he is standing freed before them in their home. But while the disciples are rejoicing and celebrating, not everyone's happy at Peter's emancipation. We find this in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
See, the men who were responsible to keep Peter in chains are absolutely terrified. These soldiers knew the brutality of King Herod. I mean, they were holding Peter to be executed. They knew how barbarous this man could be. And they knew that failing to do their job would mean certain death on their behalf. And so we read in verse 18 that there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. This is another way of saying there was absolute chaos ensuing between them. They were in a frenzy trying to work out what do we do? How do we explain this to Herod that Peter's gone missing? I mean, how would they answer to Herod? How would they explain themselves? How would they, who would they blame? How would they avoid execution? And in the midst of this disturbance, we see King Herod come back on the scene. And the worst nightmares of these soldiers becomes reality in verse 19. Look with me at verse 19. And after Herod searched for him, that's Peter, and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. So Herod's back in the spotlight. Herod's not interested in how Peter went missing. I mean, maybe he could have just waited and heard the stories of the soldiers who told about the angel who'd come and delivered. But surely Herod wouldn't believe that. I mean, if he'd just listened to the soldiers and their testimony, maybe he would have had the opportunity to turn to God and find forgiveness. And yet Herod, in his hard-heartedness, turns again to violence rather than humbling himself before his creator, and king. And so in addition to James, we've got some more victims of his bloodbath, the sentries who are guarding Peter. But here's the thing, it's quite depressing to read this story unless we find the hope in the text. And what a wonderful thing it is that God does not let Herod go on his murderous rampage forever. He won't let him go on pretending that he's God when he's not. And isn't this good news for us to hear, especially when we see rulers around us doing the same? God puts Herod in his place in the final scene. And this is the fourth point, the judgment of Herod from verses 20 to 25. The judgment of Herod from verses 20 to 25. Look, we've made a verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. Here we find Herod angry again. I mean, it's not surprising. This man is a violent man who lacks self-control and who is driven by impulse. And we're told in verse 20, we're not told why, but we're told that the people of Tyre and Sidon come to Herod begging him to maintain peace with them because their diplomacy with King Herod is the source of their food supply. Their nation depended upon Herod's supplies for food. And with the flick of a switch, Herod could turn off the resources getting pumped into these cities. We're told nothing more of this incident in the text. But whatever the outcome was, this little episode is just another example and manifestation of Herod's brutality. And I suspect that Herod enjoyed the dependence that nations had upon him, viewing him as some sort of creator and sustainer, when in reality it is the Lord who gives rain and harvest, and it's the Lord who provides all things. 
And it's funny, at this point in the narrative, things begin to change for King Herod. The narrative shifts, and we witness Herod's final moments, and we find this in verse 21. Everything goes downhill from verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Stop here for a moment, again. Uh, Some of the details in this episode are filled in by a parallel account by Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who wrote uh, in the first century AD, he lived from 37 AD to 100 AD, and his historiography antiquities records extensively the conditions and events of the first century. You see, as a Jew, Josephus had no vested interest in promoting Christianity, and yet his account adds weight to the truthfulness of the testimony we read here in Acts chapter 12. And I'll be appealing to Josephus on a number of these points in this final section. Josephus helps us to understand what this appointed day was in verse 21. You notice at the start of verse 21, on this appointed day. Josephus explains that this appointed day was the games of Caesarea, a day of athletic events sponsored by the emperor of Rome. It was one of those festivals that brought the Roman citizens together and to give honor to the Roman emperor and to his regional kings and to build social cohesion to quiet the people and to maintain unity. It was on this day, the games of Caesarea in verse 21, that we read in verse 21, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. I want to highlight a couple of things just in these, this final uh, few verses. Number one, notice Herod's clothes. Interestingly, Josephus tells us about these royal robes that Herod dressed himself with. It's easy just to think that they're any king's robes. But in his book, Antiquities, we learn this. I'll read a quote from Antiquities. He writes, On the second day, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. So it's not just any fabric robes, these are silver plates that are glistening with the light of the sun, a light so blinding that you would have been thinking that you were looking at the very sun itself. And so we learn in this that Herod putting on these royal robes was about displaying his pride and his pomp to the audience that were there to see him. He was there to show off his wealth, his power, and his glory, and his silver robes are just an outward manifestation of the inward corruption and pride that's deeply embedded in this man's heart. Secondly, we, we notice something about Herod's speech. We read in verse 21 that he delivered an oration to the people from his position of authority. And we're not told what the contents of this oration were, but whatever he said... He was certainly a gifted speaker, given the response of the people in verse 22. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And it's exactly at this point that King Herod, if he had any grain of humility, would have stopped the crowds and said, wait, 
I'm not God. I'm just a king. That is blasphemy. But no, Herod loved the admiration. He loved the praise. He was soaking in the moment and he loved how the crowds were pleased. And what did King Jesus do when King Herod was proclaiming himself as God? King Jesus showed King Herod who the real king was. I mean, he does this in two ways. Verse 23, he judges Herod. Look at me to verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Why did Jesus strike down King Herod? Because King Herod did not give God the glory. He pretended to be something that he was not. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. You know, it's clear that Herod wasn't on a mission to humble himself, and so God did what he always does. He humbled King Herod. And how did he humble Herod? By showing the crowds that the man they worshipped as God was just a man. I mean, what a humiliating death for King Herod. There's great irony in King Herod's death. Just moments before, he's being worshipped as an immortal God. The crowds of thousands would have been cheering and praising him. And suddenly, this mass delusion and hysteria is stripped away when God struck him down and he's eaten with worms. I mean, is there a more powerful display of King Jesus' lordship over even the most wicked rulers like King Herod than this? But we see a second way that Jesus exercises his lordship over Herod in the text. And we find that in verse 24, just a small detail, but a powerful one. In verse 24, we read, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I mean, this truly is a remarkable verse. You see, Herod attempted to stop the gospel from spreading so many times. He killed James, he imprisoned Peter, he killed the sentries, he worshipped himself in front of crowds, and yet despite all these attempts, he is unsuccessful. And why is that? It's because Jesus Christ is the risen and ascended king. And even the harshest methods of force and violence cannot stop what Jesus Christ is doing. And so in the face of this vicious persecution, Jesus Christ was increasing and multiplying his word, a fulfillment to the promise that he gave his disciples to be with them to the very end of the age. Let me conclude. And let me conclude by returning to the question I raised at the beginning. How should Christians respond when our rulers persecute us? How should we respond when they persecute us? And let me clarify, while this text certainly addresses our political rulers, the same applications can be made of unbelieving parents, unbelieving relatives, employers, and any worldly authority in our lives that refuses to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe a government that pressures you to recant your faith in Christ or to engage in sin, or it may be the family member who threatens to disown you unless you stop taking Jesus so seriously and living a life of obedience to him. Brothers and sisters, when we 
face increasing persecution, I suspect that there are two ways that we are tempted to respond, both of which are wrong. On the one hand, it is so easy to compromise. It's so easy to buckle under the pressure, to just give a pinch of salt to Caesar. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, is it? It's so much easier to just go along with the flow and not cause a ruckus. Because that way we don't lose our prestige, our power, authority, our money. And so we compromise in the face of persecution. But on the other hand, we can fall into despair. And I know that for me, this is my default position. You know, no one has to convince me that the world is a dark place. I already know it. And so I frequently become overwhelmed with a degree of darkness engulfing this world. So engulfed and overwhelmed that I become hopeless and downcast at the trajectory of where our nation is going and where our world is going. But is there a better way to respond than to compromise or despair? Is there a better way from this text? I believe there is. And if there's one message there is that you need to take away today, is that you don't need to compromise, you don't need to despair. You need confidence in the power and lordship of the risen Jesus Christ who reigns today in power and glory. Is to have confidence in our risen king who succeeds all worldly authorities and powers and who finds no match in this world. I mean, as we look around us, we see Herods literally everywhere and they seem to be succeeding. You know, worldly authorities and rulers who hurt and oppress Christians and yet who seem to be prospering, you know, When I read this account in Acts chapter 12, I'm reminded that God doesn't work according to our time frame. You know, King Herod wasn't executed immediately the first time he sinned. I mean, he got away with killing James, it seemed, and putting Peter in prison, it seemed, and proclaiming his own glory before the crowds, it seemed. But Jesus Christ had secured a day of judgment for him. And this is immensely comforting for the believer because we are reminded that God has not forgotten you even when things seem like he has. For in the grand scheme of things, we know that Herods never win. But more than this, we see that even when wicked men reign, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. And brothers and sisters, this is an immense source of comfort to us Because things aren't as they seem from a worldly perspective. If you look at this world through the eyes of the world, you will not see the Lordship of Christ. But reading Acts chapter 12 gives us a bird's eye view, a heavenly perspective of what is happening in the heavenly realms. We see God at work advancing the gospel despite man's greatest attempts to thwart the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who struggle to believe that our king is a gracious one, let let me remind you that the Lord Jesus is not a king who rules by brute force. He's not a megalomaniac who seeks power and dominion for his own benefit and for his own selfishness. My friends, remember that Jesus Christ is the king who laid down his life for you, who shed his blood that you might have life and who rose from the grave that you might not live in fear. And so, friends, our trust is in a gracious, sovereign God, 
one who has already secured victory and who will soon return to deliver us once and for all. And you see, because Jesus Christ is your king, you're on the winning side. Jesus has already declared his victory. And it's just a matter of time until he reveals it to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that things are not as they seem. And we repent that we are so often driven and dictated by the winds and powers of this world and we see things from an earthly perspective. We're so tempted to compromise in the face of pressure. And we're so tempted to engage in despair when we see just how bad this world is getting. And yet, Lord, in all of this, I pray and we pray that you would help us to see that Christ really is our king right now, that he really is ruling, and that the word of God is multiplying and increasing in spite of man's greatest attempts to thwart it. Father, give us confidence and assurance for the brokenhearted here. Lift our spirits up to trust in the grace of one who is greater than our fears. And for those of us who are compromising, lead us to see that It is only a matter of time until the rulers will be put in their place. And so help us to trust in you. We ask through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.